These verses sound inspiring, challenging, and bold, and I know they form the core of what it means to be Christian and pacifist. In fact, I wrote about them in my MCC application to teach in Iraq last summer. But in my privileged middle-class life, these ideas are mostly abstractions and noble thoughts. I try to say three nice things to a student who storms angrily into the classroom saying they hate school and they hate me. Have students talk face-to-face in mediations instead of just assigning them detentions after a fight. I try to set up pen pal exchanges between my students and students in Iraq or Afghanistan. But that's about as close as I've gotten to promoting loving of enemies. I myself have never been faced with violence and persecution. For my students in Iraq last summer, though, these verses aren't just theological abstractions that they analyze, discuss, and write about in their seminary classes. These verses are what they live through in their daily lives. During Saddam's reign, the 3% of Iraqis who were Christians were protected and respected. Since his overthrow, however, they're assumed to be linked with the West and therefore targeted for killings, kidnappings, extortion, torture, and beheadings. Each student in my class had a personal horror story, riding on a bus of Christian youth that was bombed, opening a letter at their front door containing a knife or bullet threatening them to leave, having to clean up blood and bodies outside their houses or schools, burying murdered family members, or even waiting years to hear whatever happened to a father or brother who disappeared. More than half of the Iraqi Christians have already fled, waiting for years in refugee camps before relocating to Canada, Europe, the United States. They're descendants of some of the oldest Christian communities in the world, founded by Apostle Thomas on his way to India. Many still use Aramaic in their services. They live in the heartland of the Old Testament. The confluence of the Tigris and Euphrates is believed to have been the location of the Garden of Eden. They have the burial site of Seth, son of Adam, the plains of Nineveh, the mountain where the ark rested, the ancient city of Babylon. They even have monasteries still in operation since the 4th century. But despite their long history in the land, they're now being threatened off it. Some of them refused to leave. Last summer, and actually this month as well, MCC sent teachers to organize an intensive English course for six weeks at a seminary in northern Iraq. Our students were mostly young men from 18 to 30 years old who were studying there, as well as some local priests and nuns. They are all committed to staying in Iraq and serving God in their communities, despite the violence around them. They don't have the luxury of thinking abstractly about loving enemies, living peacefully, and losing their lives for Jesus. Do not, overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The aunt of one student was married to a man who translated for American soldiers during the build-up to the war. These soldiers had even attended his daughter's first communion. But because of this association, he was murdered on his way to work one day. The killers were caught, and his aunt was given the chance to request the death penalty. These killers deserve to die, people told her. But she refused to sign the order. I will forgive them for Jesus, she said. Several weeks later, her daughter was also murdered. The student shared that though his aunt struggled with God mightily during this time, she continued to pray for the killers and to be able to find healing through forgiveness. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Churches are heavily guarded by men with machine guns, something unseen in Saddam's time. Priests risk their life to drive into mass, but make sure to come and go by different routes as they've been frequent targets for kidnappers. The students told us how the year the Bishop of Mosul was murdered, three young men from his town joined the seminary. The Bishop of Baghdad was kidnapped and tortured brutally. Despite threats to kill him if he ever returned, he's again taken up his duties back in Baghdad. Last October, teenage suicide bombers burst into mass at a large church in Baghdad and murdered more more than 50 people. 
Yet the following Sunday, people risked their lives to gather again in the devastated building and worship together. Another student's family fled to Syria after finding a knife on their doorstep with a note threatening them. While his family fled, he chose to stay and become a priest. Another student was riding on a bus filled with Christian youth. The bus was bombed. He came to the seminary a month later, scars all over his body. God was with me, he said. He wrote about how accidents can destroy us or make us grow, that we're responsible to decide how we respond to and use these accidents. His response was to grow even stronger in faith and commit to seminary studies. Another student's father was captured. They promised to release him if he converted to Islam. He refused and was tortured and blinded. I see God in my heart now, he says. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Several of the students reacted fiercely to the topic of community building between Muslims and Christians. You people come from the West, they said, and talk about peace, peace, peace. Your brother wasn't killed. Your mother wasn't murdered. We need our own communities as Christians. We need our own separate land. When the room quieted down again after heated discussion, the nuns spoke softly about the kindergartens they run, open to both Muslim and Christian children. It's the only way, they said. We have to learn to live together. One assignment that week was to envision their ideal community. After hours of heated discussion, which were happening in Arabic, not English, which was our objective, the students did agree on some lines. Here are some excerpts of what they wrote. In my community, families will be together in safety. Children will play without danger from electricity or bombs. We will pray for terrorists, and they will change their hearts. In my community, there will be no difference between men and women. Love will exist between Christians and Muslims. Governments will serve the people, not steal from them. In my world, all the people who left would return to live in Iraq. We wouldn't have walls between countries or people, not physical or moral walls. Instead, we would have bridges between countries and people. These verses that we heard earlier are radical ones. Our brothers and sisters in Iraq don't just read these verses in church. They live them out in their daily lives. Each day, they must face the challenge, the heartache, the contradictions, the seemingly impossible demands of these verses, and live out their response.
Who is my enemy? Who is your enemy? How do you define an enemy? Is it the next door neighbor who lets their dog do its business in your yard? Is it the person who you find malicious? Or is it simply the one who is irritating? Who is your enemy? Jesus, when he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? Answered, love God, love your neighbor. And the person asking the question then asked a second one. Who is my neighbor? And then followed the words of the story we know as the Good Samaritan. Go and do likewise were his final words. But let's put that on the reverse. Who is the person that is my enemy and your enemy? A question to ponder, a question to ask yourself. Cesar Garcia, the new Secretary General from, uh, for Mennonite World Conference, in the article in their news uh, paper, made an interesting comment. Of the challenges that are experienced between Anabaptists of conviction and Anabaptists of heritage, meaning those who have long been in the Anabaptist movement, maybe for generations, me and probably you, and those who have come more recently because of conviction. And the very seeds that tear us apart as humanity is right here in our midst. And I wonder if they don't already reside here between you and me in ways that we don't often speak about. They go unspoken. Can we actually refer to one another as enemies, somehow framing and using that language I find challenging? Is it their fault or is it my fault? What responsibility do I bear in a relationship that is broken and difficult? What works? Denial? Trying to talk about it? Angry words? Frustration? What actually works? On a daily basis, I run into folks who somehow irritate me. They say something, whether I be negotiating with another realtor, words like, send us an addendum for this amount of money, not your puffed up amount, which we had two quotes. Our quote happened to be higher than their quote. So somehow was it my responsibility that our quote came in higher and in our discussions not your puffed-up quote. And within my heart, I wanted to say a few choice words, and I refrained. Now, this passage, the one word that says, who is the enemy, in many ways it's irrelevant if they're a friend or an enemy. The passage says love. In the message, it says love from the center of who you are. Don't fake it. And so how do you and I proactively live our lives in love? How do we show respect? And I think that's one of the things that we can do. 
is simply in our conversation with family and friends. Respect, listen, work at differences, hear the other's perspective, and in some way reach out in a way, in a token of reconciliation. Who are your enemies? How do you respond to those maybe that irritate you? You may not classify them as a violent enemy, but they are someone with whom you are frustrated. Go from here today thinking about how you actually live these words in your daily life. How do you apply them? How do you take responsibility for your own words and your own actions with those that you interact with? Go in peace and be one of peace. While I was reading the Matthew passage, I realized that I identify most with the disciples. I think it would make me impatient and upset to hear my leader and friend talk about suffering and dying, and I certainly wouldn't want to know about it beforehand. I would wonder why Jesus had to do that. And then to be talking to Jesus about not wanting him to die and to hear him say, get behind me, Satan, would make me very upset. I wonder if seeing Jesus crucified and tormented would inspire me to take up my cross and follow him or turn me against taking up my cross more. It is wonderful to think about making sacrifices and following him, but who has perfectly followed Jesus? Sometimes I'll be playing a game outside with my brother or curled up in my room reading a really good book, and my mom or my dad will call me to go water the turkeys or fold my laundry, and I sometimes don't perfectly obey them the first time. <clears throat> think how much harder it would be to follow Jesus perfectly. The disciples did a much better job than I would have done. 
But Jesus promises us he will always be with us even when times are difficult. It helps me to know that even the people who are closest to Jesus sometimes had trouble following him. Still, Jesus wants us to follow him and keep on trying to do better. I hope that I can do a better job taking up my cross and following him. To write this, I set up my laptop on the kitchen table. Before I could do that, I had to shove aside the following. The half-gallon glass jar the milk was in. The cardboard container developed a leak when I dropped it. Four sort of clean napkins. Three empty or empty-ish oatmeal bowls. Aiden didn't like the stewed figs I artistically added to our cereal. A cookbook, the sugar bowl, and the good housekeeping, housekeeping book. How do you get pine pitch off a pair of jeans? If I should have happened to set my elbow in a little drip of honey before grabbing the dishcloth, we just won't mention that here. (laughs) Reading through the scripture passages for this morning, what do I find? Romans 12, 9 to 21. Yet another list it would seem of things I should do but don't. My Bible goes so far as to give this passage the heading, Marks of the True Christian. Is that really what Romans has laid out for us? Yet another reminder for the compliant and eager to please that she will never quite get it right. Better get back to work, Missy. You have a long way to go. Let's leave my housekeeping and all of our failed attempts at perfection aside and really consider this list Paul gave to the Romans. Love genuinely. Be repelled by evil. Give honor to your loved ones in the church. When you are mistreated and reasonably furious over it, surprise your enemies with your kindness. Be generous with friends and strangers alike. Share in each other's joys and grief. Don't give yourself credit for more smarts than you actually possess. Keep hold of the excitement and purpose you brought to your baptismal vows. This actually sounds like a reasonable way to run a life and a church. There are even those completely human caveats in verse 18 if it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. A beautifully stated acknowledgement that we can do our best and still run into intractable quarrelers. How would we go about doing our best? Today's passage begins with, let love be genuine, and I think that's a good start. Genuine love is based on truly knowing another, recognizing his considerable strengths, and making the decision to behave lovingly in the face of his considerable weaknesses. Genuine love appreciates her slick Sunday self and her raggedy Monday edges. We find this genuine love when we tell the truth about ourselves, when we welcome each other into our homes, when we tune out the clamor and really listen to the person sitting next to us at potluck. So let's join those long-ago Romans. The list is long, it's true, but we have a place to start. Let love be genuine. 